Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is episode number 56. And today we return. I am joined, as always, by Maggie Park. Hey there, Maggie. And Hi. I am, as always, M. Corey Olson. And today we return for installment number four of our opening series, where we continue to do a case study of uh, looking at the openings, specifically comparing books and multiple film adaptations, um, thinking about how they are approaching, what we learn from these openings about what they're, um, you know, what they're broadcasting about the, 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 the start, like where they're placing us as an audience at the start. But in addition, the, the, the kind of the, the other additional thing there is that we're focusing on the how. Right. Looking yeah. at this as a case study to really see how is it that films are communicating compared to the book. And also, you know, but by looking at the two different, we get a couple different angles on that. Um, and at the risk, I'm going to run a little risk here of bringing up our topic from last week risking a digression into continuing to talk about Pride and Prejudice for another half hour. But um, I it has really changed a lot of my thinking. Last time was such a fascinating example. Like when you look at, and I'm thinking here especially of the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. The, what would you say? Who's, who is the, Ron Knight? Was it? Uh Right. John, John Wright. John, John, John Wright. Oh, so close. I was. I had the vowels mostly correct. John Wright. Joe Wright. Joe, Joe Wright. Wright. Joe Wright. That was it. Anyway, the Joe Wright production. I want to give credit to the actual director who, like, you know, whose vision this was. The Joe Wright opening Joe versus Wright. the book opening is such a remarkable um, contrast between what you can do really well in film and what you can do really well in the book. Right. Jane Austen in the book starts off with those really wonderful general sentences, right, which do a really sophisticated, complicated job of placing us in a particular place and then boom, straight into dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. And again, she's taking advantage of the fact that since we're reading the book, we're in control of the pace, right? So if we miss something, if we like pick up on something later in the conversation, we can go back if we want to, right? There's so like, you can pause and think things through where you don't get that leisure in a film, right? So anyway, so there's all this like depth and richness um, of, of uh, uh, not wordplay exactly, she's not making puns and things, but um, which again, we see things happening on so many levels during that exchange between Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, um, which dominates chapter one of Pride and Prejudice. Then in the Joe Wright version of the film, we get no dialogue and it's just camera pan, just landscapes just landscape. and camera panning. Right. And that's yeah. all that we get as the camera travels across the whole area and we get this full like introduction to the to the the general setting, the sort of the, the general like, you know, England and beautiful countryside. Right. And the specific setting of of this house and this family house and the particular family. people and the issues going on and the taste that we get of all these things, all with no words whatsoever, which, of course, is theoretically impossible in a book right unless it's like a graphic novel with a long nonverbal entry of like multiple you know just pictorial panels but anyway like it's it's just you can't do that in in a book so what he accomplishes there is it's again though so those that contrast between chapter one of pride and prejudice the text and uh the opening you know two minutes of the Joe Wright uh, Pride and Prejudice film adaptation is such which I mean it's just it's so illuminating to me to really 
try yeah. to put your finger on how they do things differently. And I don't mind at all that we harken back to Pride and Prejudice because we're talking about sense sensibility today. And I feel like discussing the two, not in comparison, I don't think we'll go back and forth, but in right. progression is really interesting. And they just tell the story in such different ways. The thing I was thinking about after we finished last week was the tone of the comparisons is what I find so interesting. So like <laughs> the text we had information on like cultural mores that was deemed important first. So like, what is that kind of baseline foundation that our creator wants us to know before we engage in the tale for Jane Austen, it was like societal mores. Right. For marriage and, and yeah. Yeah. For Joe Wright, it was pace. It was beauty. It was setting, you know, like you'll get absorbed into this story i don't have to explain everything to you and it's explained to you in different ways visually you know tonally and costume and things like that but it's not this like list of of uh explanation and the bbc one's kind of somewhere in between the two and it's it's just told a different perspective today we're gonna see quite a few different ways that our creator thinks that we need to see things first off so Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I love know. having the case study to look at these things though, because it just shows you like, we're not just talking about text to screen. We're talking about authorial intent. So creator intent is so big with adaptation yes. that Joe Wright's purpose was to be faithful and tell a story. Yes. Emma Thompson's was to be faithful and tell a beautiful story, you know? So like she walked that line, which we'll get to of how to kind of try to marry those two things. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And it, it is such a different, I mean, again, it, it really, um, it helps to contextualize. We've often talked about things like, um, uh, we have frequently said in the history of other minds and hands that, you know, you shouldn't go into an adaptation just grinding an axe about faithfulness, right? And being, and, and being ready to be angry and resistant. Um, but again, the thing that, one of the things that I'm really enjoying about this case study is it really helps to see what exactly that means, right? Um, if you ask the question, is the opening of the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice faithful to the book? Like, how do you even answer that question? Right. Right? I mean, it's it's doing something quite different and in a completely different way, an almost opposite way, right? Um, but does that mean it's not faithful? Like, it just... The I mean, we've we've been saying and we've been saying for years and a half, right? That like the question of is it faithful to the text is a much more complicated question than can be answered in like a set of it's checklists. It's not the right, qu- yeah, yeah. It's not the right question. It's not the yeah. right question at all. And this is yeah. it, so to try to appreciate not only the two different stories that they're telling, but the ways in which they're telling stories and trying to to judge them on their own basis and 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 to to. Um, I mean, I like the way you were just putting that about the Joe Wright, like what, the, where the Joe Wright version is putting us, right? The kind of reaction that, I mean, that first scene, right? When we were staring at that one landscape, nothing yeah. changing, nothing happening on screen for like 30 seconds, which felt like forever, right? Well, and remember our conversation about shots where like most shots are four to six seconds. If you have anything longer than eight seconds, that is a significant establishment shot that the director wants you to sit with something. That was 35 seconds long. And there was nothing like special. It wasn't like you were seeing a scene, like a a, a landscape that's going to be important later on or something. It was just just a shot, a landscape shot. But 
And I also love that was like, oh God, what year was that? I was working in the cinema. That was like 2006, maybe that came out. That was before how divided our attention is now. Like that, I think, would be an amazing directorial trick now Mm -hmm. to get people to focus because we never focus anymore. You know, we're checking our phones, we're checking this, we're hearing like as a as an audience member making that decision in 2006 to sit them there and slow the pace down and make them sit and engage i love that yeah i'm amazed we don't see it more from directors now no it's very interesting uh, you know mm. the, the first time that i and and the, the other thing that strikes me that makes me feel like what you were just saying about the kind of uh, i don't know what culture right of the Joe Wright adaptation it seems exactly correct is that you know you know when I kind of came around on it the first time I watched it which was soon after it came out I was still I was I was still doing it wrong like I was I was you know there were a lot of things my wife and I okay. saw it together and we were very like oh man there's a lot of things we don't you know we thought yep. a lot of departures from the book that we didn't like and everything um but I was realizing it kind of I was sort of I, I began to appreciate it on its own ground um, when I saw it on a plane, not when I watched it on my screen on a plane, but when I was sitting in a window seat, when oh, the person yes, yeah. in the middle seat in the row in front of me was watching it on the plane, which means it was right in my field of vision whenever I looked up from my laptop, right, which I was working on. Every time I looked up, there it is on the screen right in front of me that I can see between the two seats right in front of me. In other words, I got no sound at all. All I got was I would occasionally look up and there is beauty on the screen (laughs) right Mm -hmm. and i kept looking up and i knew what it was i mean i knew what it was and of course and i know the book well enough to like look up out of context and know exactly the moment in the story that is being depicted Mm -hmm. um um even because i I couldn't even read captions from there but again i just i mean i would i but every time i was like okay that's really beautiful that's and and like the, the way in which that adaptation is really driven as you say the initial scenes they tell us the language of that mm-hmm. production, you know, and that uh, and that's consistent, I think, uh, throughout. And that's really interesting to pay attention to. And that's uh, also yeah. a really good exercise for people to just try is watching. You don't have to watch the whole film if you don't want, but watching a film without any sound mm-hmm. um, or watching a film. If you have a mixer that you can take out dialogue, take out the dialogue and just listen to the music over mm-hmm. the images. Like there's so many different ways that the story is told yes. that I think you just get a lot from it. But hitting mute is probably the easiest way to just kind of get a vibe, but commit to like three or four scenes and just try to watch one of your favorite films without any anything on top of it. Uh, it's just a really interesting exercise. It helps draw attention to the d- different elements that you would normally take for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially when you do know it well, because you do fill in those gaps. Yeah. And it just kind of gives you that like example of like, this is what an adaptation does. You will fill in the gaps, but it has to give you the focal points to be able to fill those gaps in well enough. And yeah. it's sometimes when those bullet points are missing that the everything falls apart a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we forgot to give the reminder for next week. Oh, we forgot so to give a reminder for next week. Oh, that's right. We got to just jump straight into Jane Austen. Before okay. we're, we're going to come back to Jane Austen in just a second, but we did. We'll, we'll 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 announce this again at the end. We'll remind you again at the end. But we did want to announce we have a special session. We're going to interrupt our openings series uh, next week because next week we're going to be joined uh, by some special guests. Um, we will have. Uh, 
some core members of the development team of the new Return to Moria game joining us next week. So next week, we're going to be talking about... So, of course, the Return to Moria... Uh, game was just released uh, on uh, PC last week, uh, so it's a still a brand new game. Um, lots of people are talking about it. It's, it's probably like the biggest new Tolkien adaptation that's out there right now. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. Of course, we're gonna be talking about it in the context of. Uh, um, we're gonna be talking. We're gonna be talking about it in the uh, in the context of looking at the adaptation process and thinking because we have we're not building. done yet. Uh, it's something we've always been kind of meaning to get around to, um, but we have not yet done thinking about the kind of adaptation choices that are involved in using a medium like video games, um, which has, of mm. course, many, some similarities with film adaptation, but some significant differences, obviously. Um, and so what's at stake there? How, what is that process like and how does that inform uh, thinking through uh, uh, a video game as adaptation? Um, so yeah, so we're going to be joined by the game director, by the head writer, and the art director uh, of Return to Moria. And the consultant. And the consultant. <laughs> yes, exactly. I did consult on that game. So um, anyway, so that's going to be a lot of fun. So so we'll be we'll have that team with us next time. We'll be talking about Tolkien. We'll be talking about dwarves. We'll be talking about video game adaptations. Um, so uh, definitely. Um, you know, bring questions and things that you would have there, uh, there, because we'll we'll try to do what we can to uh, to take questions and stuff about the game, uh, and about, of course, focusing on the adaptation discussion as we always do. So that's going to be happening. Um, that's going to be happening next week. Thanks for the reminder again. I'm swept pretty excited away about into it. Austin and, and totally forget. And I don't have the game. And I don't have the game yet. So we we're talking about like you know what you guys can do because don't feel like you have to go out and buy it tomorrow or anything. Right. But you know, watch the trailer on YouTube and just engage in some of the stuff that's out there. Um, Matt Nerd of the Rings has a, a really good piece, and um, I think Nubita did one on TikTok as well. Yeah. There's there's a bunch of things that are out there of just people talking about it, so it's worth engaging a little bit before you come next yeah, week. Yeah, you can, you can get a little bit of a taste of uh, what the game is about and and what the where it's kind of set like what it's what story it is uh, it is it is adapting and and things so um uh anyway yeah you can definitely you can definitely check it. you can check out some game streams yeah there'll be there'll be a bunch of oh, options for sure. getting a getting a little sampling of it um so we'll uh, dip back into our tolkien after our our intro sesh but for tonight we'll return to jane austen that's right <laughs> okay yes now back to austen so tonight sense and sensibility um about an hour. Game on. Here we go. Sense and sensibility in an hour. Um, this time, I think I'm not going to read the whole first chapter, but we can. Oh, we'll read the first couple paragraphs, and we will. Um, and then I think we kind of skim and see like where it goes in the in mm -hmm. the rest of the first chapter, um, which I think is going to be is interesting. Well, I know it's going to it's going to contrast interestingly with what we're going to see in both of the film adaptations. OK, yeah. Chapter one, the family of Dashwood had long been settled in Sussex. Their estate was large and their resident was at Norland Park in the center of their property, where for many generations they had lived in so respectable a manner as to engage the general good opinion of their surrounding acquaintance. Anyone else getting a Bilbo Baggins vibe? That sounds to me so much like the beginning of The Hobbit. The late owner of this estate was a single man who lived to a very advanced age, and who for many years of his life had a constant companion and housekeeper in his sister. 
But her death, which happened ten years before his own, produced a great alteration in his home, for to supply her loss he invite, invited and received into his house the family of his nephew, Mr. Henry Dashwood, the legal inheritor of the Norland estate, and the person to whom he intended to bequeath it. In the society of his nephew and niece and their children, the old gentleman's days were comfortably spent. His attachment to them all increased. The constant attention of Mr. and Mrs. Henry Dashwood to his wishes, which proceeded not merely from interest, but from goodness of heart, gave him every degree of solid, oh, sorry, not advancing, of solid comfort which his age could receive, and the cheerfulness of the children added a relish to his existence. By a former marriage, Mr. Henry Dashwood had one son, by his present lady, three daughters. The son, a steady, respectable young man, was amply provided for by the fortune of his mother, which had been large, and half of which had devolved on him on his coming of age. By his own marriage likewise, which happened soon afterwards, he added to his wealth. To him, therefore, the succession to the Norland estate was not so really important as to his sisters, for their fortune, independent of what might arise to them from their fathers inheriting that property, could be but small. Their mother had nothing and their father only seven thousand pounds in his own disposal, for the remaining moiety of his first wife's fortune was also secured to her child, and he had only a life interest in it. Okay, there's our first two paragraphs, right? Which, first of all, you'll notice after the two short sentences, which made up the two first, well, long sentences, but two sentences, each one of which was an independent paragraph at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, um, we have these quite long paragraphs here at the beginning of Sense and Sensibility. Um, now, what do we learn? What do we learn from the beginning of... And I will... I will Okay, I, I said I would sketch ahead. I'll sketch ahead to the, the, rest, of the, the rest of the chapter, which is pretty long, right? So then the old guy dies... Right. And we have his will. Right. His will leaves the property to Mr. Henry. But after him to his son by his first marriage, instead of uh, he can't leave the property to his three daughters. Right. So the one son who is already rich, which she told us about, and the three daughters, which are poor and they can get nothing. And then the old guy dies and they inherit the property and then Mr. Henry Dashwood dies a year later and is frustrated that he can't leave the money to his wife and daughters. And Mr. John Dashwood, his first son, inherits the property and the father uh, begs him. Yeah, the father begs him to remember his sisters. His, uh, his, his stepmother and his three sisters and to take care of them. And the son promises to do this. And he makes a plan of giving them a significant amount of money to help to support them uh, now that he's gotten this extra windfall. Um, then we learn about how his wife, Mr. John Dashwood, the one who inherits the money and is supposed to help his sisters, how his wife immediately moves in to Norland Park. Um, yeah. which is legally theirs now, um, but in which, of course, the, the mother and three sisters have lived, you know, the stepmother and three sisters have lived their whole, you know, their, for many years. Um, just lost their father. Just their lost their father, and now these strangers come and 
sort of displace them. Mrs. Dashwood is really upset about this, and this leads to sort of character sketches of Mrs. Dashwood, and then of yeah. a paragraph each to Eleanor and to Marianne um, and to Margaret at the end, with yeah. a paragraph in the middle about Eleanor's assessment of the situation. So very well summarized. It's long. It's it's long and it's complicated. It's again very different from the it's very different complicated is the word i would use too because i had to reread that first paragraph so many times and i haven't read this one in probably three or four years so i had to reread the first bit a couple of times even knowing the film so well this time but it is a little complicated but i like what you how you kind of summed that up that we similarly to pride and prejudice and to hobbit i didn't recognize that correlation but it's true you start with societal instruction you know you start with like this is how things work and then by the end of the chapter, we have character sketches of the people that we need to care about. So it's like, here's what you need to understand. It's more of that foundation laying. Uh-huh. And then you get, here's who's going to play this out. Yeah, yeah. But it is a little drier. It's much drier. It's much, I mean, it's hard. It's hard not to, I mean, I feel this way. And I think I, I, I can't imagine there are very many people who don't feel this way that this is probably my least favorite opening of any Jane Austen yeah. novel. Like, it's not engaging. Who loves these first paragraphs, right? It feels I mean, very instructional. And I'm yes. like, what? It, it's like why I didn't like Game of Thrones for so long. I just could <laughs> not understand who was who. Give me a right. chart. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's very, it's very complicated. And she does a kind of bait and switch in it. Like, the first paragraph is all about Mr. Dashwood, the elder Mr. Dashwood, who lived to a, a, a great age. And not only does it turn out <clears throat> that we don't care about him because he's going to die on page two, right? Um, and his will is what's important. But we don't even care about... Well, I mean, we only care indirectly about Mr. Henry Dashwood, the guy. So here's the story about a guy. Okay, it's a story about a guy. And this other guy's family lived, moved in with him. Okay, all right, guy, mm-hmm. another guy's family moved in him. with him. And then both of them die, right? Both yeah. of them die, die within a year, like w- within a year of each other and within a couple pages of the beginning. So, in fact, what we learn by the end of the paragraph is what we care about are the third generation here. Like the children involved. When he came in with all of his, with his wife and all of his kids, it's those kids in that generation. That's who we care about. That's who this story is and, about. And I wonder what her purpose in doing that was, you know, like just to show that that is the normalcy. Like we are going to go through three generations in a hot second because that's what happens to some of these, you know, highborn women. I mean, these were highborn women in this incredible home hosting massive balls and yes. having yes. grand pianos and big dinners and fancy outfits and all of this. And then all yes. of a sudden they got nothing. Right. So, you know, Growing up as a woman, she was probably quite familiar with that happening to some of her acquaintances. Yeah, you're right. That uh, so one I I didn't quite get to one of the um, it, to a one I, one of the most um, uh, f- famous passages I think of this bear is basically why why did the old man the original old man why in his will. So he le- he makes a will. Um, by the way, the fact that I feel like 
this needs explanation is part of the issue with this chapter. Like almost everybody yes. needs a chart. Uh, for We're the still first here. Chapter of, pri- yeah. of, of of sense and sensibility, right? Okay, so the old man, so Henry Henry has moved in with him. Henry and Henry's family. Henry is the one who was married twice, right? Henry's first marriage had one child, which was John, and his second marriage has the three daughters, who are the women that we care about in the book, right? And the old guy met. John when he was a kid, right? And so he tells that story. So when he dies, when he dies, the old man leaves his property to Henry, but he doesn't leave it to him free. He stipulates in his will that like, yes, Henry, you get the land, but you have to leave the land to John. Like basically he's saying, I want John to have, I want little John to inherit the state after I've decided I've met little John and I want little Johnny to be my heir. Right, is what the old man decides, and of course he leaves it to Henry. It's not like he's gonna, like, just leave it directly to John and cut out John's father entirely, right? Like, yes, you know, Henry, you can stay, you you can have it while you're alive, but you have to leave it to little Johnny, right? Um, and that's uh, uh, and why does he do this? Why does he make this choice to leave his whole estate to little Johnny? To, to mandate that Henry leaves the estate entirely to little Johnny. And he gives a, uh, uh, she gives a description of it. The hole was tied up for the benefit of this child, who in occasional visits with his father and mother at Norland had so far gained on the affections of his uncle by such attractions as are by no means unusual in children of two or three years old. An imperfect articulation, an earnest desire of having his own way, many cunning tricks, and a great deal of noise, as to outweigh all the value of all the attention which for years he had received from his niece and her daughters. Um, so, yeah, the Maggie, what you were talking about... Oh, by the way, um, uh, we once had a baby bib that said many cunning tricks and a great deal of noise. Uh, I like that. Yeah, that <laughs> I'm was, like, that was... <laughs> as you were describing it, I'm like, this is very familiar to me. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yes. An earnest desire of having your own way. Yes. Is this, is this resonating with you? You've got a toddler Such in the house. That's a beautiful way to say stubborn as heck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Earnest desire to have her own way. I'm getting that on a t-shirt. That's amazing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but yes, um, for that to replace the the relations that have been there before. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, going back to what you were saying about um, how in particular women are, um, can like their circumstances can change in a heartbeat. Like they're, they, how, how women tend not at all to be master of their own destinies as far no, as completely. their social and financial uh, well-being is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah. that was a question I wanted to ask you because I couldn't find it in the text, but I didn't have a ton of time. In the Emma Thompson adaptation, she actually has a line, we can't even earn our money. Yes. Was that in the original text no. or was that an Emma no. Thompson ad? It, it's one of the things that I think Jane Austen didn't have to say because yeah. like a message for the benefit of the late 20th century audience um, yeah. who might be thinking, why didn't they just get jobs? Right. right. They, they can't do that. No. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, 
Yeah, whereas the Jane Austen would never even have thought of that. <laughs> so like, it was known that they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't get jobs. Um, uh, or rather, I should say more accurately, they couldn't get jobs without entirely departing from their social sphere. Their life, right. right. Um, if they had gotten a job, they wouldn't be part of right. the world that they were they in They could anymore. have become like governesses like Jane Eyre. But in doing so, there's they are departing from the social sphere of like gentlemen and gentlemen society entirely um and so therefore any uh the question of course um here in pride and prejudice it is a truth universally acknowledged that any single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife in sense and sensibility we are living with three young women three young women who are high, you know, in that sort of level of society, but have no mean, the only way that they can um, continue their life is by finding a rich husband. Like they mm-hmm. are completely helpless. The only power that they have is the, the hope somehow of attracting a good husband. But of course, husbands are interested in money too, and right. they have none. So um, that's another sort of reality there. The reality, by the way, which the opening sentence of Pride and Prejudice is flamboyantly ignoring, right? Um, That is to say, you could add a writer to it. It is a truth universally acknowledged, right? Um, That a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife, comma, and would... It, and and is very likely like interested in a young woman of uh, of significant fortune as well, right? I mean, yeah. like that's um, yeah. Like anyway, Hello, Willoughby. Exactly, exactly. Um, but anyway, the the way so we're given one way to characterize the opening of Sense and Sensibility is to say we're like we're like invested in the whole legal situation, like the whole situation of legacy. Um, the bait and switch, right, of starting with old Mr. Dashwood, whose name we first name we never even learn, right? He's just old Mr. Dashwood, um, uh, who we don't care about, apart from the fact that he's going to write a will, right? But that will is going to be determining the destiny of people two generations down the road, and that's exactly wh- why is it that Eleanor and Marianne and Margaret are in the position that they're in, because of the will of old Mr. Dashwood, right? And so what it ends up illustrating is how these things come. And we're told, like, why? Because he thought little Johnny was cute when he was two. Right. Right. Um, There was nothing special about him. He was acting like a toddler, which the old man found endearing. And so he decided he was going to leave his. And and there's even a gentle accusation of injustice here. Right. Yeah. That same old man lived with the three daughters for years. Who looked after him. Who looked yeah. after him and cared for him and did good things for him. Um, and yet he chose not exactly to disinherit them, but to prevent them from being able to be supported by his estate. And it really does just kind of illustrate like what the the stake, the I don't know, the the worth of women might have been at that point. Because yes. for him to just kind of casually look over them he didn't even notice like yes. oh they're cute but that kid's cuter right you know yeah like yeah to just be completely disregarded and you know that's a real viable fear that i think is clever to have been written in yeah 
or to say or for him to basically I mean it seems the implication seems to me that he was probably without himself thinking about it very much focused on the boy child you know yeah. you've got the one boy child and the three girl children right um and the but he was just so naturally focused on the man right. because this is the heir that I want just... to be the lord yeah. of the estate you know uh later on um, a broken system yeah yeah, exactly. No, it's it's yeah. uh, and but again, it's not just that. It's not just that, like the laws of you know of of inheritance. He could have, he could have done more, like yeah. It would have been one thing to say, John gets Norland Park, but I'm. Gonna, uh, I'm not even that he had to set it aside. That I'm gonna allow Henry, the father of the girls, to set aside large marriage portions out of the inheritance. Mm. He could have done that. He could have realized cash to say like, yes, John gets the John gets the house, Good right? John, John gets the land, but I'm gonna out of this money, like out of the estate, I'm gonna set aside ten thousand a piece my, or yeah. twenty thousand a piece for the girls for for marriage portions. Um, but he can't legally. Henry legally can't do that because of the way the, that old Mister Dashwood wrote his will. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's really thoughtless. I mean, like the, I don't. You don't get the impression that old Mister Dashwood was horrible. You know that he meant to harm the girls, but it was it was it was a thoughtlessly written will. And now there are these massive consequences to you know the rather arbitrary choice. So. It's 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 interesting because it is a very it is a very personal uh, situation. Like it's there's 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 real personal drama involved there, um, and yet I think there's a sense in which I almost think the beginning of this book is supposed to be boring, right? Yeah. It's like from such matters of inheritance and legacy, like this is how things. Like yes, we're starting with a heroine who is in a tenuous situation right because of like circumstances of her birth and family but instead of just starting the chapter there right he could have she could have done that right she could have been like eleanor dashwood uh you know was the son of and and just start it from her perspective and be like you know eleanor dashwood had a problem right her problem was she was poor and here's why she was poor right but that's not the perspective that we get at the beginning instead we get brought into this whole the societal situation of what painted this world that she's in right and and you get that a lot more throughout this one too you know like when um edward is talking about his desire to be a member of the uh, the leader of the church like he just wants a quiet pastoral life but that's not what his mother wants like then you have this whole like familial expectation of greatness and class and what means good and what is not acceptable and military is acceptable but church is not and all these different levels and rules and explanations it just helps you see how that world is so restrictive so having something as pure as love bloom between these characters and have it somehow come to fruition is so much more satisfying because you understand how restrictive the culture that they're in is yes so i think that's why the payoff of jane austen's marriages at the end is so big and so you know perpetuates so well is because we cannot in any way understand how that would have worked out at the beginning that wasn't allowed and that's yeah. made very clear that it's not allowed yeah and sense sensibility i think is 
more. I think it contains the most complex and robust exploration of social boundaries in relationships of any mm. of her books. This ha it comes up in other places too, of course. I'm not saying it's unique to Sense and Sensibility, but as far as like what, where, where are lines drawn? Why yeah. are lines drawn? What's appropriate? As you say, like whether it, the, the combination of like Mrs. Farrar's um, expectations on Edward, right, to like Edward's, uh, you know, scandalous secret first engagement crossing different lines and that's not mm -hmm. okay but what about a girl who's you know so like a girl who's poor and of a not a good family that's not okay but how about a girl who's poor but of a good family like eleanor right what about a mm -hmm. a, a, a a girl who's um uh not poor Lord. but not of a good family right what about you know and 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 how do you define what as you said why is the army okay but the church is not right like what is it yeah. and those are both professions like to be a professional man in this culture mm -hmm. means to have one of four there are four professions there's the church the army the law and medicine those are the four professions and that's kind of like to be anything other than that, to have a job, any, any you know, if, if you have a if you have a job, there are those four professions, and then there's everything else is just to be like a laborer, essentially, like to be like if if you're a if you're a if you're a if you're a shopkeeper, right, or even a shop owner, um, like. Um, but for so many of these people, it was there is no work. You are just a gentleman. You right. you live off of your fortune. Exactly. Um, yeah. So. Being professional people could mix with the gentlemen, the like the whole the the upper class, right? But they were still separate, right? Mm -hmm. And so and so here when you're talking about because you're right, Mrs. Ferraris makes a big deal about like the 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 army versus the church or the law, right? That's another that they're choosing among the professions. They're all professional men. It's perfectly respectable to be a clergyman. Um, but it's not fashionable enough for her, right? So it's like, it's, it's a very fine distinction that she's yeah. making between the church and the army. It really is about fashion and an outward look. Like, but she the, is choosing that over her son's happiness, for yes, sure. Yes, I mean, yeah. it really is about, it's something almost as, as, as shallow as, but you will look snappier in a military uniform than right. you will in like a cassock, you know, or uh, like yeah. it, so, uh, you know, or could get in invited circles, to more yeah. walls or have a better circle, right. you know, all those things that right. somebody might care about. You'll travel more, you know, <laughs> it, it'll be, it'll be, yes. I mean, it's, it's, uh, but anyway, so I get the way in which this book explores those kinds of frontiers and what crossing those frontiers, either personally, like moving from one, class or subclass to another what that means for you and your reputation what crossing it by marriage you know um would mean either in either direction like to for a woman to marry down or a guy to marry down like and that's like all of those things are uh are are being explored uh in this in this book so anyway um uh yes yes this is anglican clergy who are allowed to marry jj that's right that's right um uh yep so, yeah, to be, I mean, yeah, and I would just say, JJ, this is, we're still very much at a time in the early 19th century where if we're talking about Catholic clergy, that would be like 
that's a totally different yeah. <laughs> like to be to become a I mean you might as well like talk about I mean seriously like talk about uh, societal suicide uh, to become a Catholic good grief um, uh, yeah yes Phil it is the same as Mr. Collins so yeah exactly just the same as Mr. Collins yes and being given a parish and having a space and you yeah. know there's there's a certain and, amount of and, uh, and an income style of acceptance that comes along with that yeah, yeah. income influence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep yep anyway okay so, so this is where we begin in the book right and it is indirectly um it does even by even by the way that the women the female characters who are going to be the protagonists of the entire story only get introduced to us at the very end of the chapter is in itself maggie like another testimony to what you were describing like the the yeah. marginalization of women in this society is being kind of gently demonstrated by how after all of this discussion of these different and complicated legal and financial transactions among the men folk here are the women and here are the women who are going to actually have to be living with these because all the men die like all all those men who are doing those things except for the two-year-old boy who has grown up to mr john dashwood with the horrible wife fanny um is uh um they're they're all they're all out of the picture and now the women have to deal with the consequences but this is where i mean there's there's so many elements of jane austen that i think are phenomenal but she gives so many different layers to each of her characters so each character doesn't just do one thing they will have multiple things going on that show you their character you know what they care about what they'll stand for what they won't um i'm thinking even here's a small example of colonel brandon that like he's obviously a man of great reputation professionally but we also know that he uh you know has a good heart because he looked after a ward that got herself into trouble which we later find out was connected to another character so that person isn't just a love interest that person's also a bad guy and so everybody has these different roles to play and we have pages and pages and pages to figure this out. And I imagine a whole lot of gasping and shock when these books were read out loud with their yeah. sisters or something in a parlor back in the day, because yeah. it just feels like a big old reveal. Like, and then he did what? Yes. Um, yes. But we don't have that kind of time in a text. So like the ways that those different elements are explained filmically are lovely. But that's why we have to start with just introductions, because there's like, there's just too much. There's just too much. There's just too, <laughs> there's much. Just too much. Okay, so... so so thinking about the film adaptations then um let's and, think- and the introduction we've got from sense sensibility we've just established like it's societal it's cultural it's rules it's foundations it's like you have, i mean it's yeah yeah you got to know what you're getting into because it's real complicated and that feels like the kind of main gist from the text it, it's a while till we get into dialogue and start to understand who the characters are yeah, exactly. So in the film versions, in both, so we're, we're going to be talking about two different uh, film adaptations. The 1995, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's Emma a film, Thompson. by the way, that I always remember the date, the year of, uh, for the very good reason that it was one of the first dates I ever went on with my wife. So oh. I remember 1995. <laughs> I, rem- I remember, I remember where good I was one. when that film came good out. One. I remember what I, I, I remember the movie theater I saw it in, um, but um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, that was 1995. That was 1995. Um, Emma Thompson did the adaptation as well, so she wrote it. 
Yes. Um, and directed it? I think so. She was like the whole show on that one. I think she did direct it. And I'm pretty sure she won Best Adapted Screenplay and Kate Winslet was nominated or won Best Supporting Actress. Did did Emma Thompson win two Oscars for that? I think there might have been two, but I can't remember. I'll I'll check while we keep talking. I I don't remember this. And the other one we're looking at is the 2008 BBC adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's right. Directed by Ang Lee. She she did the screenplay right. and then and, and, and she so she starred in it and did the screenplay and Ang Lee yeah. did the direction. Yeah. Yeah. I won't look up awards right now. We'll do that later. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Yeah, Ang Lee. Sorry, Ang Lee. Yeah, no That's... worries. Apologies <laughs> to Ang Lee. Um but um okay. So, so intros. In sh- yeah, so at the openings one interesting thing that both of them um oh so by the way i was i i couldn't believe it when i was looking it up and we we're i was looking up at the the, the 2008 bbc miniseries adaptation and realized i've never seen it like i missed that one and that's I'm like, epic okay i know what my wife and i are watching next because man like I love that there's something I've seen before you have. 2008 so. BBC adaptation with Mark Gaddis playing uh, John Dashwood and, you know, and Howard Dominic Stark. And Dominic Cooper as Willoughby. Willoughby. And... <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. pretty good. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. I'm interested. No, the cast looked fascinating, actually. I was, I was, um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So. And I, um, I think it's like three ninety nine on iTunes right now. So have fun. I'm totally, I'm totally, I'm totally watching it. Um, but, um, okay. So, but I did watch the opening so that we can talk about the opening. This is another fun thing about the case study is just, you know, so I can't talk yeah, about we don't have, the we film. don't have to set aside six hours. We just need like 10 minutes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So both of them get rid of old Mr. Norland completely, right? Yep, both of them involved. streamline the opening situation. Which, so, frankly, makes a lot of sense in adaptation. So much sense. Not necessary. It's going to confuse the audience. Just jump straight in. So much sense. We get, yeah. um, uh, yeah, so, like, we basically start both films on the deathbed of Henry Dashwood. Almost. Start. Asterisk. Start. Let me say, start the plot of both start of them. Start the plot. We start yeah. the, the story we begins... We Mostly. see something else in the 2008 one. We'll get to in a second. But oh, the story yes. begins. Yes, the story begins on the deathbed the, of Mr. Deathbed. Henry Dashwood. The so again, one. establishing the issue of finances. Yes. So we they both of them do establish the basic, um, the basic fact that of Henry's helplessness to provide for his wife and daughters because of the restrictions of the of his own inheritance the way in which that the estate has been entailed which by the way same situation with the bennett's and pride and prejudice right mr bennett is restricted he, he, the estate is entailed if he had had a son he could give the estate to his son um but in default of male issue the state must go by the rules of his father's will um, to his brother's child, who is Mr. Collins. And both adaptations, I think, very quickly give a lot of strength to Fanny, the wife. Yes. Uh, who, I, like, I got it in the text. You could see what she was doing. It yes. made, like, no, it revealed the character. 
But the 1995 Fanny, I forget her name. Oh my goodness. Was just so dang brilliant in Classic. how she controls that narrative yes. that I don't see any way the 2008 version wasn't affected by that. Yeah. Like those two scenes are so good. And the so multiple tight scenes of Fanny and John riding, uh, Fanny and John Dashwood riding in the carriage with her little lap dog her little mm-hmm. almost hairless lap dog that she's exactly. stroking like a bond villain the whole time um yep. yes yes harriet, harriet walter Wal- thank, thank you. you yes yeah. um yes that uh as she, and so that process so that the storyline that you're referring to which is very much the focal point of those early scenes in both film versions is how the dynamic which happens in the book Right where John makes a promise to his father on his father's deathbed that he will provide, that he will help his sisters and 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 provide for them, um, and he in the book he resolves that he's going to give them each a thousand pounds. He's gonna he's gonna dedicate three thousand pounds to helping support his sisters, and he informs his wife of his intention, and. They have this discussion where she basically and like talks a beautiful manipulator. She starts by saying, "Well, of course you are. You're so generous." However, yes, dot dot you know, yes, and she gives all the reasons why, and and then in the end, she basically has like he ha- he decides that he's uh, he's just going to he's going to give them nothing essentially. He's mm-hmm. just going to give them occasional uh, gifts or presents or advice essentially, like right or like introductions to society. So basically nothing. Yeah, he he she, he's yeah. going to give them nothing at all while still convincing himself that he's fulfilling his father's dying wish. Um, but now the thing that interested me most about this is that that happens in chapter two in the book. It's not where Jane Austen begins the story. Um, I. It gets there pretty quickly. Like, I'm not saying it's not at the start, but it isn't the opening note of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, It's, uh, whereas it gets, you know, not only do we cut out old Mr. Dashwood, it really, even, like, all of the legal stuff. Like, we don't, I mean, we care about the will in as much as it informs the situation, but really, the story begins with the deathbed promise of John to his father. And then Ooh. how that gets, and then we get introduced to how horrible Fanny is by watching her sort of talk them down here. Yeah, I don't feel like you you don't get the emotion quite as easily in Sense Sensibility. I think it's there, because mm-hmm. in both films, you absolutely see the devastation and the relationship between the girls and their dead father, and you feel an actual real strong sense of loss in the music that Marianne plays and all that kind of stuff. Yes. And I think that's there in the text, but it's not quite so overt. Yeah. You know, yeah, it is. It it's, is much more it's not dry. Where, again, thinking about this question of like, where do they put us? Like, where do these stories put us as viewers at the start? Right. Yeah. Um, Austin puts us in this dry and helpless place. Again, I think it's 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 almost like a kind of experiment. Like, I, I genuinely think that chapter one is boring on purpose. Essentially, mm-hmm. like she obviously can write more engagingly than that. But I think she wants us to be at a place where we're like, hang on, I got to read that. Pe- Did I understand how the yeah, provisions yeah. of this will working and wait, who's related to whom and who's yeah. leaving what to whom and why does this happen? Um, that's where she wants us to be at the beginning of yeah. the story. She wants us to be and stuck, frustrated, confused and puzzled as to why these girls are left 
helpless yeah. because that puts us in exactly. So now when, you know, uh, when they're expressing their frustration, we, we're with them, right? We, yeah. we, we feel that. Um, that's what Jane Austen had to do to tell place. her story to get us to that point. Yes. That's not necessarily what the filmmakers had to do. So right. again, like how to tell your story in a different way. Right. So with, with the, both of the filmmakers start with the sort of like the emotional appeal of the deathbed scene, right? The father is dying and his son comes to his bedside just before he dies. And the father lay very urgently, right? Often, um, you know, in the, in the, in the 95 version, the father is looking right into the camera when he says like, you know, you must do this. Promise mm-hmm. me you will do this. Right. I mean, it's like, okay. Okay, sir. Yes. Well, well, in the, the, and the 2008 version, all the girls are there. Yes. So that conversation in is happening while they're witnessing it. And you yeah. see the mom, the wife's eyes, like look to him being like, you promised. You I promised. heard it. I heard yes. it. You promised. Yes. Yeah. You know? You're right. You're right. Whereas we see the father absolutely in profile. Like we're looking yeah. at the side of his head as he's speaking the speaking it up into the air, asking for the promise. Which that difference in perspective struck me as a really profound difference. But you're right. The reason for that uh, that we're looking at this like the daughters, right? Yeah. We're like sitting with Eleanor because yeah. she's seeing him talking to somebody else. The appeal is not to to them, and therefore not to us as the audience. Yeah. Um, and that 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 choice. And man, talk about your examples of things that films can do and books can't do, right? To deliver the same line, but just literally from a different perspective. Like seeing it straight on like this or seeing Mm -hmm. it in profile like you're overhearing it said to somebody else. And just the reception too, like just how I viewed it, knowing that somebody else heard the promise, it changes how that is accepted. Because when it was just the two of them in the room, somehow that felt like, that was a sincere promise, he is going to do his best. And then Fanny did something messy. Whereas when the girls were in the room... It looked immediately like we didn't believe that was going to happen. And she already knew that it was going to get dubious. So she's already flagging to us that something shady is going to happen. But we didn't get that in the 1995 version. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, it's, um, yeah, the kinds of cues that we get as to how to. And and so thinking of the 95 version then for a second. um, Us watching John crumble as Fanny wears him down um, over the next couple like it's one sort of scene but the setting keeps changing you know as it's like they're having this one continuous one conversation, conversation yeah but it's obviously something that's broken up over you know days probably right which is um, beautiful because that just aids the idea that she's a master manipulator that yes. she's just trickling these lines out as appropriate through their everyday life, not sitting him down over a table and having a conversation, just sneaking right. things in as they're moving here and there. Yep. And every time it shifts him a little bit more, but watching that erosion, um, we are very profoundly hit both by aversion to Fanny and by disgust at John because of how that appeal was directed to us originally like we felt in this deep and visceral way the um the 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 appeal for the promise to help the dashwood girls right um and so 
there's a way in which, again, having been placed so actively shoulder to shoulder with John, right, to watch him act like this, when it's like, you know, the perspective I feel placed in as a viewer is I feel like saying to John, that's not what our father told us. <laughs> right? exactly. You know, like, you were betraying, like, like, you feel the betrayal personally. Yeah, yeah. Not you because you're seeing it from the perspective of the girls, um, but because you're like, you know what he said. You felt the the appeal, mm-hmm. um, and so you are you are you are very painfully aware of how uh, how far short he is falling of that. And so, in this way, the ninety five version parallels the book in waiting to introduce the girls. Mm-hmm. Right, just as she doesn't introduce the girls until the end of the chapter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or all of the women, I should say, Mrs. Dashwood as well. Um, so too the '95 version. I mean, we get Fanny, so I'm not saying we get no feminine presence at all, but um, we get the I deathbed, mean, and then John's, you know, the corrosion of and 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 you know, gradual vacating of John's promise before we ever even meet the girl. So that is the reality. That is the perspective from which we are first introduced to Eleanor yeah. and Marianne um, and Margaret, and then and Mrs. Dashwood in the '95 film. Um, uh, and and that's very different, as you say, from having them present in that moment and literally seeing it from their visual point of view um, mm-hmm. in the 2008 version. Um, that's uh, yeah, it, it does really frame the thing very differently. But speaking of framing things very differently, we cannot know, continue we have to, to just, neglect. I, the in- I want to. Sp- Good chat. <laughs> the actual opening sequence of, of like, the... let's not spend a ton of time on it. Yeah, but you have to at least acknowledge it. Oof. So there's an opening sequence in the 2008 that is just basically soft porn. Like, yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen, and it's just like this very sensual, firelit erotic. Sensual, and nothing is like. You know, I'm thinking about in terms of writers and ratings and things like that. Not, it, like, it's all PG, PG-13. PG, like like, in fact, like, TV PG came up on the screen yeah. during the but erotic like, moment. <laughs> somehow yeah. it feels way more risque than that, though, because yeah. of what they don't show. And they talk about her age. So it's it's the um, uh, seduction of Willoughby to of, of the, the ward. Yeah. Of, yeah. And we don't see of, his face. We hear his voice, we but he's kind voice. of whispering and urging. It's not, it's not yeah. a, um, yeah. Whew. I mean, like, it's one of the first lines is like, but Mrs. I forget her name, Mrs. Edwards or whatever. Mrs. Edwards thinks you're a child, but we know better, don't we? Yes. So like immediately it's this super shady, inappropriate yes. situation going yes. on as he unties her blouse. And you're like, where am I? Because yes. I'm not in Jane Austen. Yeah, but, and we're you were getting. I mean, so much focus. Like the the camera is entirely focused on the woman's skin. So we're seeing mm-hmm. her from it's it's from behind her shoulder. So you're seeing her neck and the side of her face and her shoulder and arm and a little and and then cutting to her back to watch him pulling the ties free uh, that that go down her back. Um, but I mean, just like the 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 camera is just focused very sensuously on her skin and his it's, his caresses of her skin 
it's very much an extreme close-up. But when you have yeah. an extreme close-up, it's almost always of somebody's facial expression mm -hmm. to convey an emotion or a situation that they're in. So to have that kind of intensity onto like a shoulder mm -hmm. feels very, I shouldn't be here or super sensual. And that's yes. kind of what both are going for. I will say it's beautifully shot. Like it's it a really shot. lovely scene. It's just so jarring for that to be the first thing when you're expecting sense and sensibility. So if you know nothing of the story, maybe that was just their like, the string, like what that. kind of movie am I watching yeah. right now? <laughs> like maybe that was just their push for like the after nine PM crowd to be satisfied <laughs> right. that Jane Austen little... after dark is what we were getting. Yeah. Right. yeah. Like there's something in this for me too. Hey hey. Yeah. Well, I mean <laughs> but so otherwise it's a bit jarring. Yeah. So here's one of the things that I, so on, on the one hand, I I don't know again, I, I haven't watched this whole production yet. So I, I will, but I haven't yet. Um again, this was, this was me it, it was um and it, it was this scene that I was watching because I thought I'd seen it. I'm like, oh, the BBC Sense of Sensibility. I'm, I, I think I've seen that. I mean, I've seen so many Austin You're adaptations. Like... They all run together. So I'm like, okay, I, I think I've seen it. So I start it. And I'm getting the, the firelight, you know, erotica. <laughs> and I'm like, I have not seen this. This, is, this does not look familiar. And I'm sure I'd remember it. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So I, I, anyway, one of the things that really struck me was they literally had the title. Like, they were running the opening credits during this scene. Um, it's not like it was just a scene and then they cut to the credits after that. That's not how it worked. Um, it was like the opening credits were running during the sensual scene, sensual firelight scene, which means there was a moment when the title of the, of the thing, where Sense and Sensibility appeared, like, over this like woman's shoulder wow. who's like very follicles I could see in the extreme close-up, you know, I mean, it's, um, so, and, and if I'm remembering, cause it, it struck me at the, I only saw it once, so I might be incorrect, but I think that the phrase, like the, the title sense and sensibility came up, like was being shown over like his fingers caressing, like his fingers sensuously sliding mm. over her skin. I don't remember when that happens, shoulder. but that sounds about right. The reason that I was noticing that in particular was that, so the title of this book is uh, a very carefully chosen title um, because the play between sense and sensibility um, and those are both vocabulary terms from the early 19th century, which neither one of which means exactly what we might think it means. We don't use the we don't use the word sensible at all in the way that they're using it in this anymore. Um, we still use the word sense mostly in that way, but not very often. Um, uh, but um, but anyway, the. Um, Mo Dillon says, yeah, Maureen says, sensation and sensibility. Yes, it was kind of like Sense that. Sense and sensuality. <laughs> Sense and sensuality. <laughs> I'm sure that one exists, but that's yeah, not. Actually, what don't Google that, uh, is yeah. my recommendation. It's, but um, believe it or not, it was BBC. <laughs> yeah, BBC, PG. Uh, it was like it, rated TV PG. Um, but um, uh, anyway, that sensibility is about so to be a person of sense is to be guided by your reason and intellect to be a person of sensibility is to be guided by your feelings and your emotions um 
So you have, if you're a person of great sensibility, it means you are, you have strong feelings and you, you feel and perceive things very acutely. Whereas a person of sense is someone who can kind of maintain a more dispassionate distance mm -hmm. and judge things by their intellect. And of course, primarily these two things map very clearly onto Eleanor and Marianne, the two oldest daughters of the Dashwood family. Um, there's even that line where um, Mrs. Dashwood says it to Marianne when she, after she judges Edward's reading as being dispassionate and says, but he does not have your sensibilities. Yes. Yes. So it's a very much a, well, he's just not as impassioned as you are. It's, yes. it's a, a very different meaning of it. Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, I was the reason. So back to the the sense and sensuality scene that, I, that we were looking at. I thought it was interesting because one of the, this vocabulary issue that we were just talking about, it's one of the interesting framing challenges of this thing. If you're going to title the movie Sense and Sensibility, you have to in some way deal with the fact that most modern viewers aren't going to actually know what those words mean in relationship to the story. Like part of your job is to explain what that means, right? And so just seeing the words sense and sensibility physically juxtaposed over this very sensual scene, I was like, oh, oh, right. Okay, oh. so we're leaning, so, um, and again, I, I know nothing about the rest of the production. So I, I am in this case actually a kind of a pure example of where we're placed at the beginning of the show because I don't know where the rest of the show is going to take us. But where I felt placed at the beginning of that show was like, oh, so that's what we mean by sensibility. Okay, so we're, we're I mean, I don't think anyone is going to think that sense is involved. I mean, unless you're thinking about senses, Right, like one's senses, or I think that's probably what they would be implying there. If we're talking about a physical touch, and it's like, well, you can have the physical sensation, right. or you can have the sensible, grown-up decision. Yeah, like, is it reversed? Right, mm. actually, like because it, it's a scene of what I think most modern people would think of as sensuality, right? Right. But sensuality is very different from sense in the yep. in the in the nineteenth-century sense. Um, and of course, a modern person might possibly, the only time we use the word sensible still at all is actually in a way which almost means what they meant by sense. Like, mm. uh, be sensible, we might that sounds say. sounds sensible. Right. Mm. Or that both of which is like, be logical, think about it clearly is what we mean. Whereas, again, the, it meant almost exactly the opposite back then. So, I, again, I was just, I was having this moment when I was seeing the title superimposed over the scene where I'm like, hmm, okay. Are we, in fact, suggesting that sensuality and even sexuality is something that, like, underlies both sense and sensibility? Mm. Are, like, are we... Because there is a kind of third... There's a way in which sexuality or sensuality does... Is a kind of third term, even in the book, right? You know, there's... It's an issue, right? Sexuality is an issue. And, and, and... um and and again, even even sensuality, the way in which sensibility in Marianne's sense um, is also associated with um, sensuality as well, um, and where those boundaries are, um, th that it's it's another set of boundaries that the book 
is very interested in exploring different degrees of of transgression of right i mean the question of willoughby's relationship to you know the girl that we meet in scene one of that film the willoughby's relationship to marianne willoughby's relationship to the woman he's engaged to in london later in the story yeah Uh, miss gray and then um Anyway, right, the right, Miss Boring, basically. She couldn't actually yeah. call her Miss Boring, so she just called her Miss Gray. Um right. but um anyway, like all of those things are different kinds of like l- explorations of transgressions of that. Uh, I mean, how far has their sensibility led to sensuality, right? Or mm-hmm. I mean it's there's a big question right there with Marianne as with the rest of them. Anyway, it's, it's, it's very, it's very interesting, but, but yeah, so I was floored by the opening of that, of that film. And it, again, I don't think it is not in any way, but but, so here's a question. Is it true to the book? (laughs) On the one hand, I, I was like, well, that's not what I was expecting. And that's not how the book starts. But I was like, you know what? It's, I mean, yeah, that it's in the and book. It happens. It happens. Yeah, I mean, and not yeah. only that, but it's important. And it, and I was thinking again. I don't know how it's going to happen in the rest of the. I don't. I don't know what they're going to do. But um, foregrounding it to sort of start off with this idea of sexual transgression, and mm. to have that kind of loom. And we don't know the connection, right? We segue straight from that to 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 Mr. Henry Dashwood's deathbed scene with John, yeah. right? And like, what connection? What what association is there between these two things? No idea. No, but, we're given no. Clue. But real interesting. Put that in as the the most important thing, you know, because yeah, for us, we will find out about that till much later, and it does hit, but it doesn't feel quite so shady because we don't have the dialogue of that scene. We just hear about that scene happening. Yes. We don't actually see that scene. So having it up front and having the two characters actually speak puts so much more import onto it. So. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I'm. I have to admit that one of the things that I that I am anticipating again, I haven't watched the rest of it. One of the things that I am anticipating, one of the things that when I watch the rest of it, I am going to be watching very, very carefully, is what Willoughby says and how he acts to Marianne and the extent to which they're paralleling that. Like I know from the book that there is the scene when he cuts off a lock of her hair to keep. Mm. Willoughby does. And so I'm already guessing that we're going to see that from the same angle. We're going to see the back of her shoulder and her neck and head, and we're going to see his hands, just as we saw them in the opening sequence, reaching across and sensuously uh, probably Mm -hmm. trailing across her shoulder and clipping a lock of her hair. And by contextualizing that scene with this earlier scene of obvious transgression and uh, and uh, and the way that again it's not even obvious that we that, like we don't know I know because I've read the book but we don't know that it's Willoughby no but we have now a visual match if that's how they do it if that's how they that do it yeah it's it's like a, a comedian callback like you have this thing right. that you're gonna go 
oh wait I've seen oh no that's what I'm you expecting know? I don't know if it's gonna happen yeah. but that's what I'm waiting for I don't, like, that's I don't what remember I'm, to be honest that, that's what I'm, that's what I'm waiting for maybe they'll do it a different maybe they won't make it as obvious as that maybe they're trying to hide who it was you know who um though that seems that, that odd. voice yeah they weren't hiding it they weren't yeah. hiding the voice yeah yeah um anyway but it's just by placing that at the beginning they have made a fundamental change in how yeah. we approach the whole thing. I mean, I'm going to be... Not a fundamental yeah. change in plot, but very yeah. much a fundamental change in expectation, you know? Yes. So, yes. oh, you're starting with that bold move. Okay, yes. it does change. It does change your own engagement with the story. Like, I'm not sitting back. And also, everybody coming to this, because I remember being here when this came out, it was a big old deal because it was a BBC adaptation of a Jane Austen. Yeah. Well, yeah. the six-hour Pride and Prejudice BBC Jane Austen adaptation is like one of the most beloved things on the planet. Yeah. So to come out with something like that, the hype was real high. They yeah. knew they had a big audience. I think it came out Christmas break. So like the country had stopped. Everybody yeah. was watching this. This is yeah. what the Christmas special was or Easter special. I can't remember which one. But yeah, so then to start so strongly with that, that's a real that's a real pointed decision. It is. It is. And now here's the other the other thing. Again, to come back to the thing I keep coming back to today about is it faithful to the book, right? Really easy to look at this and be like, oh my gosh, what a huge departure from the book. Like that, you know, Jane Austen would never lead with that. And yet, again, I don't know. I don't know what the effect of it is because I haven't seen the rest of the thing. But here's one of the things I can't help but think. When, because of that opening scene, we are going to see Mr. Willoughby pretty much from the beginning if we recognize his voice, right? And if his mannerisms in any way remind us of the seductive, the seductor dude uh, okay. in the first sequence, the scene of which ends with the girl's face tears trailing down looking out the window in grayscale you know in a moonlit night as he gallops away right with a voiceover of her saying when will i see you again and him deflecting when she will see him again right um so when we see willoughby and when we recognize his voice we're gonna have a strong negative we're going to be creeped out by Willoughby. We're going to be on our guard against Willoughby from the very, very beginning. And now I could see many people saying, that's a huge departure from the book. Except, is it? Because here's one of the things that often happens. This is, I think, one of the biggest challenges of Jane Austen, Jane Austen adaptations is that the cultural expectations are so different for a modern audience compared to her audience. And mm. you frequently see Jane Austen adaptation struggling with how do we induce the same kind and level of reaction in the audience as Jane Austen would have induced in her audience it's looking for the same impact yeah you can't say the same thing one of the classic examples of this and we're not going to do Mansfield Park but um, in the Mansfield Park that came out in the um, we might have to do Mansfield Park we might Park. have to do Mansfield Park um I don't, rem I, I don't even remember enough to distinguish which Mansfield Park it was. It was the feature film version. I don't, gosh, I don't even remember which decade this one came out in. This was after I was married in my early two thousands, I think. Yeah, early two thousands, I big think. Big theatrical one, yeah. Yeah. Which I really liked, but it was very different. Very different. 
the moment when Mary Crawford says the shocking thing. Um, so Mary Crawford says this shocking thing that opens to Edmund and everybody else what her true character is. Like it makes it so that Edmund can't deny it anymore. Um, in that film, they had to, they added something to it. Like she couldn't just say, because the thing that she said in the book was that the sister who had committed adultery and run off with another, left her husband and run off with another man adulterously. The thing in the book that she said, which shocks Edmund to his core, is basically that maybe it wasn't such a horrible thing that she had done, right? And I think it was pretty, it, was, it seemed pretty clear to me that the, in the film adaptation, they're like, we can't count on the fact that if that's right. all she says, people are going to have the the correct reaction, like that it's going to yeah. shock them. You know, it could be like, well, yeah, OK. Right. She she was married. That's not a good look. Right. But, you know, yeah. like whatever. I mean, just in our world, that is not like yeah. shock you yeah. to your core as it was in the early 19th century. So they had to add on like a statement about her, like basically looking forward to the death of they had to pile on her looking forward to the death of the older brother. Right. Like make her look ex more explicitly heartless and everything. More, yeah. And that change, again, was that a change from the book? Yeah, it was, a, it was a big change from the book. But again, I felt like they were trying to replicate the impact because yeah. this, this, the societal values have changed in so many ways from Jane Austen's time to ours yeah. that you can't just replicate the dialogue and expect it's going to hit people in the same way. So back to Willoughby, right? Yes, that opening sequence, that opening seduction sequence in the 2008 version arms us against Willoughby, like, we're ready to hate on Willoughby from the moment he comes in if we recognize him, right? If we're prompted in any way to recognize him, and even if we catch his voice. But in the original book, everybody is like, he's, there's so many red flags about Willoughby, like that anyone in that society would have picked up his red flags from the beginning. Eleanor is like, <laughs> she she's willing to think the best, right? And there yeah. are ways that she she likes him too, but um, and or it's still it's much a shock. more hidden in the 95 version. Yes, like, it's much more hidden in the 95 version. I kind of trust him. Like, there's a few things that make you a little bit, you're a little skeezy, but mostly it's just Colonel Brandon's reaction. And we don't really understand that because it's not explained for a long time. So, mm -hmm. you know, you get more of a reveal of Willoughby being a bad guy. Yeah. Whereas in the other two, the original and the 2008, you kind of know he's a shady creature and then it just comes to fruition. Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I... I'm uh, I'm not sure. Again, I haven't seen it yet, but I am not sure that the change from the text, like the change to, to foreground that and to totally change how we view Willoughby from the beginning, I'm not positive. It's not obvious to me from watching those two opening scenes that in the end, the depiction of Willoughby and our relationship to Willoughby is going to actually be fundamentally different from the book. It, it may end up being, I, I don't know, but again, well, like, it it's a fascinating example of a change that they, well, they're making totally. a change, but that doesn't actually answer the faithfulness question. Well, and also if we're talking like tools and tool belt, it's a really good example of like, well, which element are you looking at yeah. in this exact moment? Because if you're just, sorry, my camera keeps going off, but I'm still here. Um, if you, if you're, um, just looking at Willoughby, then yes, this is quite appropriate in a really unique way. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at big picture, 
this is a really different tone we're setting. This is a very different 100%. engaging the audience starting point yes. than, again, think about like the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice. Yes. Like this, this is a different vibe, but they're really similar films in terms of like story and they're telling and stuff. But this is a very different vibe. So coming in with a strong punch, being like, ha you thought you knew what you're getting. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. Okay, to, now I've frozen my finger in the air. <laughs> to, to alter... Um... To alter a quotation very out of context, we find in the 2008 version that this is definitely a kissing book. <laughs> I mean, this is I, I get this is OK. This is a this is a story about, you know, desire and des, uh, desire and sex and all of those. That's going to be that's important. Like that's yeah. that's that's where we start. That's the frame. Of all of this, which is totally different from the text that gave us legalese. Exactly, it's about yeah. a thousand miles away from yeah. old Mister Dashwood and the legal issues of his of his. And world. that's tone, but plot, kind of on board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you yeah. can see some of the difficulties you have here, but yeah. also some of the really cool things you get to do. This is why you know there's so many different adaptations because people get to make different decisions. Doesn't mean you have to like them. You just notice them. Yeah. But it is it is interesting. I mean, I'm so I'm that's the thing that I am most looking forward to as I as I, uh, you know, prepare at some point, which I hope we'll get a chance to do in the next couple of months. Watch this uh, production with my wife. Um, I will be interested to see um, the thing I'm most on the top of my list that I'm looking for is how they how they handle Willoughby's character and how they place us in relationship to Willoughby um, and our reactions to Willoughby compared to other people's reactions to Willoughby. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's I feel like I'm being prompted to have more of a um, more of a, you know, almost like analog to like a horror movie, you know, like, no, don't open the closet kind of, you know, like mm -hmm. when, uh, when, when, you know, Mrs. Dashwood and Marianne and even Eleanor like Willoughby and oh, isn't he nice and, and being like, no, no, oh, he's horrible. Like that's, that's, that's a very different, you know, like, how much is the production going to lean into that? Right. I mean, is, yeah. it, is it going to really follow that up from that first scene? And how also does this theme of sensuality and sexuality, mm -hmm. to what extent is that going to be like drawn out? Even of the, I mean, uh, because again, it's clearly an issue. It's not like they're wrong. Right. Why do we think Edward got engaged to Lucy Steele? Come on now. Like, why do you think he got engaged to her? Right, like deep platonic relationship. I doubt it. Right, I mean they were I, at school and had a lot of hormones. And... Yeah, exactly. He was young. They were young together. They spent a lot of time together. There were hormones involved. Like yes, like that's that's you know. But again, it's but it you know so similarities and contrasts. Lots of different ways, as I said, in which Austin in the book is exploring transgressions of boundaries. Um, but um, but yeah, so with that frame, like having been brought into this in that, like with that erotica sequence at the beginning of the film, how are how are we now going to like, how am I going to be looking at how does the film going to ask me to look at like Lucy Steele or even Eleanor and and and, and Edward and uh, and all of these things compared to thinking about how, for instance, Eleanor and um, Edward's relationship is contextualized so beautifully in the Emma Thompson version, right? Anyway, so 
Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll have to revisit some of these purely just because it's a fun thing for us to talk about. And we've only talked about intros, but I would also like to do like shot analysis or scene analysis, you know? So if we look yeah. at like a sentence and look at the two different ways that that sentence was then depicted visually and you get to see the different techniques. Cause even if you just start watching these two adaptations with lighting in mind oh your goodness. brain is blown in like the third scene like there's there's so many different ways they're telling story with just light Ooh, ooh, and that reminded me because again this is maggie this is just one of those many one of these many things i've learned from you right um so i was proud of myself because i felt like i had my maggie park hat on when i was again oh. watching the 2008 the lighting the lighting and coloring like the 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 really warm oranges of the firelight sequence with the erotica at the beginning and then we cut and then like he's leaving. Right. So now we're in like grayscale as she's looking through the window and he's riding off. And then it shifts from like, so it shifts from warm orange to grayscale to almost black. Like when the, the deathbed scene, it just, there's like no light at all. It was like mostly black and kind of faint grays as John Dashwood was coming in. And then we get to the deathbed scene and it's firelight again, it's bright orange again. So like the, the juxtaposition of, the like sensuous scene and the deathbed scene i was like whoa holy cow and the the emotional ride that that took you on because firelight in that scene is not the same as firelight in that scene yeah so you needed that kind of visual breath to go from gray to black back to red because that's not allowed to mean the same thing right exactly but yet i felt i mean it was it was it was obviously very different but i also felt the connection right Mm -hmm. um Anyway, it was it was it was really fascinating. But again, that's that's another really fascinating kind of tool that yeah. film has that um, you just you can't do that same exact thing in books. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, really, really cool, really fascinating. Um, it would be fun oh, to go back and this. do another case study to do like to do a scene analysis of these same sets, like of books mm-hmm. and, yeah, of, yeah. Of books and, and films. Yeah, I think we'd pick the scene yeah. and maybe find the YouTube clip that we could share the week before so people could be like, okay, get to know this scene. We're doing a deep dive because it basically yeah. be a close reading in yeah. three different ways. Uh, yeah. It should be fun. That would be fun. Yeah. No, and this totally. is so much better when you've got visuals to show up or just don't have the time to prep that stuff at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. All right. Awesome. So next week, uh, next week, we're having our special return to Moria. Yeah, compared the depictions of Tom Bond, JJ, exactly. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Well, I mean, unfortunately, we only have the only option we have is the greatest, uh, without question, um, the greatest film adaptation of Tom Bombadil ever, which is the Soviet Lord of the Rings. Uh, oh, see, I went straight to Leonard Nimoy. Uh, well, but he didn't do he didn't do Tom Bombadil. You're right. He didn't do Tom Bombadil. You're right. There's a kind of parallel between the there's Ballad of some, Bilbo Baggins. There's something and I, in that. I, 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 I hear okay, that. the Soviet one. I hear that. Um, but anyway, I, I say that because it's the only film adaptation that includes Tom Bombadil that's ever been done. Um, I think if you and I are ever back in Studio Lab and it's a late night thing, that's the one that we should. Oh, yeah, do it. Dive yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So next week. Return to Moria. So we're going to have we're going to be joined by the Return to Moria game development team talking about adapting Tolkien's story. And this, of course, is a story which takes place in the Fourth Age. So this is after the Lord of the Rings is is done. We'll talk about what's involved. We'll talk about the relationship between text and game and how that worked out. So again, we're going to be joined by the game director, uh, the head writer and the art director. uh, And we're going to be talking about 
what the process of adapting video games is like, some of the different advantages and, and, and challenges of video game adaptation compared to others. Um, they had a rule book, how they utilized you. Like, I'm really interested in all that progression process stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, it's going to be fun to talk about. So, um, so yeah, so we'll be at our normal time uh, at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern back to... 9 p.m. Uh, your time, Maggie, as this is the one week in which our daylight savings times don't line up uh, between the UK. Yeah, I'm a little more awake than I normally am. I feel like I yawned a tiny bit less, but... <laughs> exactly. It's less late than <laughs> normal, which is good for your sleep, but not necessarily as good uh, for your child. So glad, uh, yeah. glad she's cooperative go today. I was going to make I was texting Corey at 7.56, being like, I think she's asleep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, anyway, so yes, next week, Return to Mario. So do do it if you get a chance. Uh, go to YouTube. You can look at some of the trailers. Um, uh, there's there, there's a bunch of information out there. You could just go, go to the game site and see the trailers to sort of see how they're presenting it and how they talk about the story is a really interesting beginning point. Um, as I said, I recommend go to. Um, Nerd of the Rings treatment of the game. He's done some interviews and 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 discussions. You can look up some interesting game streams and things to see more how the game, what the gameplay is like. So, um, some options to familiarize yourself with it, even if you haven't gotten a chance uh, to buy the game and play it yourself. It's a, it's available in PC right now. Xbox coming soon. Um, PS2 or PS uh, PlayStation coming um, uh, later in December. So I believe. All right. Anyway, so that's what we're going to be talking about next week, and then we'll come back. We had said um, we wanted to do, we want to do Emma, right? Okay. Yep. So let's do let's do Emma, the recent Emma film, and Clueless. And Would that Clueless. be fun? Wait, which Emma's the Gwyneth Paltrow? No, no, and the, the, the the new one. The the, the recent, new one. The one that was just like three years ago. Yeah, or something. that was really good, but not the Gwyneth Paltrow one at all. Well, see, I'm tempted to do the Gwyneth Paltrow one, but then but I'm trying to stick to the same number of things to talk I about. I know, so. but it's tough to not reference that one because it's kind of one that most people know. Yeah, it is the sort of the most... Well, let's do all of them, but like, Clueless is so different. We haven't it done a so modern retelling, But it is, so. it is it, 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 for that reason, it's a really interesting kind oh, of Oh, yeah, I definitely want to talk about it. But yeah. like, maybe we keep two that are like in tone and okay. then like wild card. Well, we'll get wild and crazy okay. then and talk about four separate texts uh, for our we Emma discussion. We might run over a tiny bit. Uh, like we did today. Okay. Anyway. Um, Bye. Awesome. Thanks so much, everybody. Looking forward to our special, uh, our special session next time. And we will see you guys soon. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Bye now. Night.